Today, we're talking with Kathy Markey, the Chief Executive Officer and President of Samaritans, Inc., which focuses on preventing suicide and providing hope. Kathy had a lot to share with us about her journey, from the way her early career shaped how she manages and leads, supporting people and first identifying what they need and then learning to ask for it, to the necessity of surrounding yourself with people who have different strengths from you. I hope you'll find something here to support you on your journey as Kathy shares what she tell herself from where she is today. Welcome to I Tell Myself, where we dive into the individual journeys people have taken to professional success and share some of the lessons that they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Danielle Frankel. I've long believed that there are many ways to learn the important lessons in life. And while some lessons are only gained through personal experience, others can be learned less painfully from those ahead of us on their own journey. I hope you'll find something here to support you as we ask these individuals what they tell themselves from where they now sit. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. All right, and we'll just start with a few fast facts, if you will, for listeners, so we can kind of get grounded in who you are and why I asked you here today. So would you share with us just your name and your position and the organization you work for, please? Yep. Uh, I'm Kathy Markey. I am the CEO and president of Samaritans in Boston, and we are a suicide prevention organization. That's great. That sounds like a high pressure position to be in on such an important subject. Yeah. So I think like leaders of any organization, right? You know, there's a responsibility and there is passion, hopefully, for the work that you're doing. And for me, it's very inspiring to be in this role and to work with the people both in staff, but also the volunteers who work with us, including board members and the public who use our services. I'm really, really inspired every day by them. Yeah. I'm curious, is this the job that you dreamed of when you started your career? Is this where you were hoping to land? Who knows, right? You never, you you have no way of imagining where it's going to take you. But I will say that along the way, it's been really important for me. And I've learned that I feel most satisfied by my job, by my work, when it is connected to people and their needs. So I've done a lot of for-profit and nonprofit work, and I've done work in higher education. And while all of those have had purpose and meaning and, and value, I feel the most rewarded when I'm connected to people and their needs. And in this case, while I knew of Samaritans before I joined the organization, it, it really was kind of the right everything in the right moment in time where I felt like I could take the responsibility on but also felt deeply passionate about the mission of the organization. That's great. I love what you're pointing to in terms of how you design your own career, right? Or how you make choices about where you go to work, where you invest your time. Our jobs take so much. We spend so much time at work, right? So how you decide where you invest that time, it sounds like you've got a really clear values alignment for yourself with the work that you're doing. Yeah, I do now. It took a while, right? When I just to sort of go back maybe to the beginning, went to NYU to go to grad school because I had a degree in psychology and it was sort of like, what do I do with that? And then it was, I really loved my college experience and the guidance I got from people who were on staff at the, at, at the college were really helped to direct and um, create a path for me and help me figure out what I wanted to do 
And I had some great experiences as a result of those folks. So I thought, oh, well, that's what I'll do. I'll go be one of them. I'll go um, into higher education from the perspective of staff on college campus. And I did that and it was great. And I was very happy in the work that I was doing in New York City at the time and finishing um, a, a master's program. And then around me were a lot of people who were living exciting, interesting lives in New York City, working for for-profit organizations and were making a lot more money than I was making at the time. And I thought, oh, well, I could do that other work too, right? And then I went into for-profit work and then I thought, I don't really like this. I'm going to go back into nonprofit work. And then I would go back and forth between the two throughout the early part of many, many years of my career. Did you do the same types of jobs or were these in sort of different arenas? Really different. Some were an, an import uh, of Italian uh, Murano glass from Italy. It was high-end jewelry in the for-profit sector. And then one was a, a high-end residential hotel in New York City. Um, it was kind of all over the place, but it was opportunities through people I knew and connections I had, or I sought out opportunities uh, related to things that I also liked. I came from um, a family that owned a restaurant in New York City. And so I had this, I know the hospitality industry, so I could go do this high-end hospitality residential hotel thing, whatever it was. And I think on the sales part, I was good at sales because I liked the product that I was dealing with. But in the end, much of it felt like, is this really what matters most to me? Is this where I feel the most fulfilled? I know that I left one of my, or came to the realization, I guess, is that I was getting involved with my daughter when she started school and we were living in New York City and I was getting involved in the PTA and, or I guess PTO it was called. And I realized I wanted to spend more time engaged in the work that the PTO was doing and the work that the, that we were doing to support some of the families in the community. And so I realized I was more interested in that work than the job I was supposed to be going to. And so I get stuck kind of talking to the other parents involved in the program or, or spending time in the evenings on all of that and realizing I was feeling more fulfilled and more connected to that work than the job. And so that was one of the clues, right? Like, are you really doing the work you should be doing? That's great. I love the way you talk about it as a clue, because I think it's very yeah. much, you know, over the course of one's career, it's a journey. And it's part of what we figure out about ourselves as much as it is what we figure out about the systems around us and navigating how, how we operate in business, but also how we show up and, and how we bring ourselves into spaces and how we choose the spaces that we bring ourselves into. So I love that you talk about it as finding your clues, like little breadcrumbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Is that the point that you made the shift more fully towards the nonprofit space? You know, one of the challenges was as a single mother in New York City, my income was obviously an important piece of what I had to, I was responsible for and had to manage. So I, I think that was part of what pushed me periodically to think about, it's nice to do this work, but you'll have to do it on the side or you'll have to, you'll have to find ways. So that was another clue was whenever I was working in the for-profit sector, I was having all of these other things on the side, like the PTO or being a mentor to a young woman through a program and for women and girls in New York City, or like finding these other 
these other uh, ways to feel that um, satisfaction and reward and that connection to people. So it was, but it wasn't until we moved to Massachusetts that then as a newly formed family, there was a partner and there is a way for my salary to be balanced by somebody else and the responsibility that came with it. So then it was when we moved to Massachusetts that my now husband was, we were all living together. And so my daughter had somebody, I had somebody to help with my daughter. And the, I mean, by this point she was 10, but not home alone when needing somebody else to help balance that and be able to consider a salary that was probably not as high as I could have made if I stayed in a for-profit role when we moved here, but we were able to manage it. So it was more at that point when we moved here that I could embed myself and really accept the fact that I was really a nonprofit person. And that's just where my career should focus. So, yeah, but it's great. I mean, it's an interesting transition and it's great how you're talking about all of the fulfilling pieces that you managed to fit in for yourself, right? Despite the fact that when you were in New York City and the economics of it didn't allow you to work necessarily in the space that felt best for you to work in, you still found other ways to do the work that brought you a sense of fulfillment. And I think so often when we think about nonprofit work, we think about or volunteerism, we think about giving back, right? And how we're giving to somebody else. But the truth is that for a lot of us, for most people, I would argue, the act of giving is actually a very fulfilling thing to do. And so I love how you're sort of mapping out how even when you were in those corporate spaces, you were finding these other ways to, right. you know, in today's vernacular, to fill your own bucket, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, another clue, right, for me was you're always seeking. That is what you need and what you want. And I think I grew up in a household that had a lot of that. And so it was part of how you live a, a fulfilling life. I mean, it's just part of, uh, of what you do. So I think that clue when we got to Massachusetts was sort of not just a clue anymore, right? It was sort of like, this is what you need to do. And this is the space you belong in. And if you are in the space that where you feel most rewarded and fulfilled, you will do your best work and you will be again, most rewarded, both in the whatever sense, the finance and the like the salary and the position and the benefits and whatever it is, that will be the most fulfilling that you'll get the whole picture, you know? So I felt like it was just time. It was just like, how many more years of work would I do bouncing between for-profit and non-profit? And then also still keeping all this other stuff going on the side. So I'm curious, we talked a little about the the different roles that you had, right? You worked in sales and you worked in hospitality, all in the for-profit spaces. What are the sort of key lessons or what really interesting things were you able to take from those pieces of your career and move into the nonprofit space that were maybe surprising or unexpected? I've often thought of the nonprofit sector as in many ways, the same as the for-profit sector, right? You have something that you are delivering to a consumer of some kind, and you are figuring out how to make the model of doing that business work, right? So we raise money from foundations and in the nonprofit sector, from foundations and donors to be able to deliver a service. And if I'm in a for-profit role selling Venetian glass, 
you know, we have to figure out the product and what it sells for and the way to get the attention and the sale so that we can continue to do the work and give this product to the world. So in many ways, I think of them as similar, but just for me, it came, I came to a place where I realized I, I care more about how I can help somebody meet their needs than, than I ultimately felt about how many of something got sold. And that was true regardless of the product. Those were the various scenarios. How many dinners did we serve or how many pieces of something did we sell, fine jewelry to glass to whatever? It just... I didn't take away the same sense of satisfaction with a big sale as I did with the number of people who benefited from a service that we were doing. So you asked, actually, I just I didn't really answer your question. So what did I take away? I mean, I think a lot of the principles that I can rely on now in leading Samaritans around the business aspects are, are probably things I learned, right? You know, how to manage managing people can be the same in, in across sectors, the business aspects of your contracts and your agreements and your taxes and your business uh, responsibilities are very much the same. So certainly I learned by either observing or being part of those responsibilities along the way. I certainly learned a lot of what I needed to bring into this role at, at this point, but there are experiences that I think you gather along the way and then how well they apply is in some ways up to us. How much do we want those experiences to be able to inform us or do we just, that's not my job. I don't need to know that. I'm not going to worry about it. For me, it was all parts of this whole, you know, and understanding why the business owner that I was working for made decisions around certain things and understanding that and observing that and then being able to think as those being lessons or experiences that I could rely on, you know, I want to operate that way or I don't, right? There's also experiences along the way that, you know, we could say, I don't want to be that kind of manager. I don't want to be that kind of leader, right? So you, it's up to us to take those experiences, I think, and decide if we, what we can carry from those, like what we take forward. Yeah, absolutely. And given my personal interest in the matter, I always love to ask, and you've pointed to it here, so I'll ask you, in terms of learning how to be a manager and learning how to step into a leadership position like the one that you're now in, did anybody train you? Did you get to do <laughs> classes? Did you figure, did you have a mentor? Did you have to figure it out all on your own? It sounds like you learned a lot through observation, sort of what was that? Yeah. What is that piece of the journey? Yeah, been? not as much in any formal sense of learning to be a leader. Although I will say that I took any opportunity I had to attend something or be part of something. So if I went to a national conference on something in higher education, I attended the, the leadership sessions or something like that. I definitely did a lot of observing and talking to people. So asking about where I had the right relationships, where I could say, tell me more about that decision and how you came to it, or asking questions more uh, or as well, asking questions like, 
it surprised me that you did that, or I didn't expect that. So tell me why, or here's why I don't think that makes sense, but I'd love to hear why it makes sense to you. So I think that was part of it. And I think, unfortunately, making mistakes along the way, making my own mistakes, which always feel terrible to to make mistakes in leadership, but they definitely are the opportunities to learn and grow significantly if we can own the mistake or we can own what happened at least. And for me, that's definitely been, right, years and years of being able to lean into the feeling of it's okay, it doesn't define you that you had this misstep or you wish you had done something different. It's an opportunity to say, what would I do differently next time, which may not make it perfect, but it's something I learned and I might do differently next time. Absolutely. I think, you know, the more conversations, the more of these conversations that I get to have, the more I hear about how uh, the combination of experiencing or witnessing other people's mistakes Mm -hmm. and taking the time to learn from those and making our own mistakes are really the two main ways that people sort of jump this learning curve. Um, I wonder if there is an example that you might be willing to share where perhaps you were hoping the floor would open up and swallow you whole. Um, But (laughs) that ended up having a really valuable outcome or a valuable lesson for you? Yeah, I think I think there was a moment in my experience with this company in, in New York where it was growing significantly. And I wanted to be perceived as so capable that I didn't need to ask them to add staff or, or support so that we could manage everything that we were doing. And it was a, a very well-known and established con- company in Italy, but they were new to the United States market. And so I wanted them to feel like she's got it all covered, right? She's managing it. And so I struggled for a while and, and then also didn't uh, do a good job initially of clarifying what I needed and what it looked like. I kept in my own struggle was they should be able to tell or they should know or they should figure it out somehow or whatever it was. And it what first two parts was, I guess the two parts is I didn't even know. So I wasn't taking enough time to identify. I need you to get somebody who could do this because that's not my strong suit. And then the second thing is I wasn't stating it clearly, right? I wanted them to understand it or know it or miraculously discover it. And I also wasn't willing to own and state what it was that would have been most helpful to me and allow us to grow. So I think that was probably a, one of those moments where years later, I was able to say, oh, that was like definitely not your best like management or moment, right? Sort of swirling around this. So do you feel like that experience in the long run has served you in taking a pause so that you can identify what your needs are and then be willing to ask to have them met, to ask for the help that you need for time? A hundred percent. Yes. And helps me as I manage people to think that way. How do I help them identify what their, what the needs are in this moment, this organization and others? What is it that we need? Let's define it. Let's own it and be okay with the fact. I'm okay 
that you are not like every one of these skill sets that the role might need, or as we grow, that you have lots of skills there, but you need to balance on something or you need more of the same, right? So what are the needs? And all of it is okay. It's all like part of what we need to do. And sometimes I can say yes to what the need is. And sometimes we have to compromise in some way to make it happen for the the benefit of the whole organization, right? You know, how, how do we balance the needs of the organization with the needs of all the folks who are part of the team and what we can really do? Yeah, it's certainly something that so many people struggle with, right? And I do, I think so often it's, we think that we're bad at asking for help, but so often the issue begins before that with the fact that we don't actually know what help we need. And so it sounds like you took that lesson for yourself, but you've now taken it to the next level in your leadership role and you're working with other people to help them figure it out and learn how to grow that capacity, which is awesome. Yeah. And I think that's just one of the things that I feel like I've settled into now at this point in my life and career is I'm not good at everything and that's really okay. And it's being able to say that is not my strong suit. So we really need to make sure we get somebody who's Strong suit, it is, because we can't all be really, really you know, great. I think at certain parts of our career, right, you can have a scope of responsibility that you can be really good at. You can be really good at all of the components of that scope. But then as you need to, as you handle more responsibility and the scope widens, the reality is we can't all be good at everything in that scope. So it's right to figure out what you like best. And so I use this example a lot. I started at Samaritans just before the pandemic, right? So early on, three months in, we closed the offices. Of course, like everybody don't know what's coming next. Lots of things to absorb and experience that was not the onboarding that anybody expected, right? Not the way the board expected to onboard me, that I expected, that my new team expected to get to know me, all of the things that were different. But we got through it, right? We just, I relied mostly on what I knew about people and people feeling stable and people feeling heard and seen and understood in this very challenging time, right? And then the second part was how do we make the work happen, right? How do we make sure that everything is happening? And we did all of that. That to me is actually in many ways the easier part, right? The technical piece of how do we deliver is just figuring it out. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, please make sure to subscribe and join our community at itellmyself.com for updates and info. That's itellmyself.com. Okay, back to the show. A few months ago, or well, I guess it's now maybe six months ago, when we had the banking situation with Silicon Valley Bank and Samaritans banked with Silicon Valley. And when that whole thing happened, 100% of my focus, right, for a period of time, figuring everything out about how do we bank somewhere else? What do we do? Where do we, how do we move money? What all needed to happen? And after we got through, you know, sort of the crisis of it, I kind of jokingly, but also seriously said to the board, I am not a CFO. 
I, I never have been. That is not my strong suit. That is not what I should be. I want to resign the responsibility of CFO and hire somebody for that who can actually be the person who could manage this and manage it better for us. We didn't have anybody full-time. We had an outside part-time consultant who was handling the CFO responsibilities and an outside agency to help us manage all the payables and all that kind of stuff. And that's just the reality, right? Is that is not my strong suit. And what I know is that I need somebody who thinks differently than me in that responsibility. And that's what we're working on now is building out a little further the team. So a lot of growth in the organization and sometimes feels scary because we're adding headcount and we're adding to the overall expenses of the organization when we do that to the payroll. But I think all of these changes and growth are going to be the way that we are able to really focus everybody on the things that they should be focused on and not focused on things that they have to do because we we have to get this done, but rather that I can, for example, spend more time focused on outreach and connecting and sharing about Samaritans and the work that we do and not on financial matters that is not my strong suit anyway. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm curious about sort of the flip side of it, where a lot of people struggle you know, in surrounding yourself with people who have other skill sets who really excel in areas where you do not excel, people often feel threatened. And so I'm curious what that experience is like for you or how you help your team members to acknowledge where they may not have as many strengths and to bring people in in a positive way, despite the fact that it can feel, it can feel competitive or it can chafe when that happens. Yeah. So I think the key there is that we all need to feel good about the things that we are good at, right? We need to know what they are. We need to have people reflect that for us. I mean, I think that probably in my career and my personal life, it's having people reflect that and say, you're really good at that. You're really seem to do that with ease. You consistently do that well. Like that's all feedback that says, okay, even if I thought my dad was really biased when he said that about me or some boss I had along the way said that uh, she was very biased towards me. The bottom line is you hear it enough times. It's sort of like, well, that's not probably not just about that. They may have been biased towards you, but it's also true. And so when we know what we're good at, then I think it's a little easier to take that scale and feel that balance. But it's early in our careers where we're still trying to figure out what are we good at and where are our strengths and and what are the things we like to do and where does that all come together in a particular way that is different than I'm good at this, but I haven't been able to figure out how to do that in a job or I, I haven't used that skill in this professional capacity or something. So I think along the way, really trying to hear and use concrete examples. So I think when I talk to members of the team, I think I try often to be specific about the thing that I see as a strength and share how that helps the organization or helps the situation. So your patience, your kindness, your whatever the thread is in that situation really enable this to happen, right? Or your perseverance or your technical skills in that moment really did this. So it helped me probably to hear those things. And so I try to do that to share with people what they're really good at. And then I think it's easier to be able to say, 
So my senses or my understanding or what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing you say is this is where you feel less confident. So what do we do, right? Is it a matter of getting you training and experience in something so that you can do that part? Or is it accepting that that is a part that could be carved out and managed differently? Yeah. So both very practical and very kind. Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious people have the most interesting stories about moments in their careers, either where they've made a mistake or it might seem out of the blue, but where somebody showed them a really unexpected kindness that helped to sort of mm-hmm. shape where they were going or how they viewed the the progress of their career. Do you have any great stories about that? I do. I have a friend whose career I admired greatly, a woman I knew from college and her career Um, as we were talking about earlier, really took the trajectory of this responsibility to this one, to the next one, like sort of, you know, a very straight path. And I admired so much of that and what she accomplished. And I was in a situation where I wasn't feeling like I was in my own shoes, you know, like I was not in the right place. And it was having... Well, actually, I have a second story too. Having her say, it's okay to acknowledge that you're not in your own shoes here. This isn't the right place for you in this situation. And you should figure out your path, your exit, right? It's okay. And I think in that point, I felt like, oh, I can't believe I'm having this experience this late in my career, right? Like many, many years after graduating from school and being, you know, working for so many years and feeling like, how do I not, how did I not know? Or how did I, why did I not anticipate this? But I think it was really helpful to have someone that I admired and respected say, it's okay to just say, this is not a good fit. And it's okay to have given it your best and move on. And the same was true. I was, that was the other story I was thinking of was coming home, living in New York city and seeing my dad and talking to him about the job. I was working in the hospitality at this hotel and just saying, I don't like it. I thought I'd like it, but I don't like it. And he said, so quit. And I was like, you can't just quit. You don't just quit. What do you want to just quit? And he's like, you just quit. And then you like, because I was, I'd only been there for three months. I was like, and then what do I do with my resume? And his answer was really simple. It's like, you just leave it off. So like, just leave it off. It's three months. It's okay. It does. It's not, it's really okay at this point in your career to have a block of time in which nothing happened. You left one job and you just didn't make it to the other one yet. And I was like, oh, okay. So I can just leave this off, not explain it and not have to justify it and not have to stay so that I could say I was there for a year or whatever. So yeah, that's great. We get so stuck on our version of how things have to be or how things are supposed to be. And we forget that everybody sees it differently. And there are some commonalities, but at the end of the day, it's also okay for there to be multiple, multiple versions of this reality. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like there is more than one story that could be told here. And mine in my head was I had failed. I picked something and then I was failing because I didn't like it. I was going to have to endure for, and that was my story. And his was, it never happened. You tried and it 
it didn't work. And so as far as the resume goes, it never happened. You learned something, but you don't have to sit there. And, and maybe it came as a perspective that for him as a parent was, he didn't want me to stay in something, right? That would be unhappy for me for a long period. So it was a little easier for him to go just step away and move on. There was perspective there that both personally and professionally, I'm sure um, he could guide me in that moment. So I take it this was fairly early in your career, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I, definitely. I think there's this sort of, I'm still teasing this out, but I, I suspect that there is this sort of window of time that's really fuzzy, right? For most adults who, if you finish school and go to work, whether that's high school or college or grad school or whatever you do, there's this early career stage where when you enter into it, you finish whatever education you're going to do, you take yourself seriously, right? You know that you are entering your career and what you do from here matters and will reflect on you, right? Mm -hmm. And we sort of have, and it's a, a large part of the reason I do these interviews in this podcast, right? We have fuzzied out everybody else's stories about how <laughs> that window of time was full of these incredible learning moments that when you do it yourself, it really feels like a mistake, you know? Mm -hmm. But the truth is that everybody has to work through that window of time and very few people do it the way that you mentioned your friend who went sort of from one job to the next, right? right, scale, right. right? Very few people do it that way. And so we right. take ourselves seriously at that point in our career because it's the beginning of our career. And we have sort of less view to the fact that most people make lots of mistakes in that window. And it's just another, it's not just another piece of school because obviously your livelihood relies on it at that point. But also like this is a very important part of learning in terms of setting yourself up for the rest of your life, whatever that looks like, whatever your career ends up being, whatever success ends up meaning for you, right? That window of time is just sort of this very fuzzy box that lots of things can happen in. You can end up right. on a totally different path that you, you never right. know. Right. And also that window, like who defines the size of the window? You know, yes. like, is it a little window or is it a really big window? And is it right? Does it include more experiences of various types, right? And more exploring and more testing and for somebody else less so for whatever number of reasons that experience, right? As individuals, all taking a path and a journey that is uniquely our own. So my career, as I've said, is just like this zigzag as opposed to this path. And this friend has said, and I've admired your career because you've been brave and going from this to that, to that, and trying different things. And I do think to your point, right, for a long time that a lot of that felt like I'm just kind of pinballing here, like back and forth and trying to figure it out. But there was always something that I took from it and always some set of experiences that I felt like kind of helped to define who I was becoming as a professional. Like, what are the things, like we said earlier, what are the things that I really like that I'm good at? What are the things that make me the person and the leader I am? What are the things that shape my personal experience along with it? Because I don't divide those things as a personal and professional. They really are just one person. So it's parts of me that are parts of the whole. And so they apply in my personal life very often as they do in my professional life. So yeah, it's great. It's such a critical time and we just gloss over it, right? Because nobody really wants to, by the time that you're at whatever 
Right. We talk about it from the perspective of being a kid, right? By the t- as a kid, you look up to your parents, friends, and they have whatever job they have, right? They're not going to sit down unless specifically ask and tell you about the mistakes that they made and or the things that they consider mistakes, but that were necessary for whatever journey they were on. Right. And so it's just this sort of little window in the middle that we don't see yeah. unless we, we dive into it. Right. On purpose. right. But yes. you learn so much about yourself in that time. Definitely. And I think that's, there is an opportunity that sometimes is missed because we feel like it's fraught with all of that sense or feeling of, I haven't figured it out yet. You know, I haven't nailed it yet. And so it feels like, boy, I can't wait to get past this and leave it behind me. And like you said, fuzzy it out because that's where I didn't know for sure. But if we allow ourselves to focus a little bit in that, and so what was it? You know, what was good, bad, positive, less so, rewarding, frustrating in that those experiences that helps me understand where I want or need to go now or in the future. Yeah, I think it's compounded in the world that we live in today by the the 30 under 30 lists, right? Which I yeah. have great respect for. People are accomplishing amazing things. And when you know, you know, and that's awesome. Like you said, right? That whatever that fuzzy window is, is different for everybody. And so for some people, apparently it's minuscule or maybe it comes right. later in life and that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I wish I could give proper credit for this. I can't, I cannot remember who said it, but I saw it somewhere in a Facebook post and just really appreciated the perspective that like, I don't want to see the 30 under 30 list as much as I want to see the 50 after 50 lists, mm. right? who figured out something interesting or amazing or different and and kept going and sort of allowed things to unfold in the time that they needed to unfold. Because the truth is they're all interesting. Yeah. And I think we are living in a time, as you said, where it's the 30 under 30. And then there's also sort of the, what we see certainly with a lot of young people is these sort of glamorized lives that we see on social media. And so in the same way, 30 under 30 is for some people, maybe the equivalent of the hyper successful influencer or celebrity of some kind, whatever it might be. So there's a, geez, I'm not measuring up, right? Because I'm not one of the 30 under 30. And what we have to remember about everybody, you know, is that, as you just said, there may be 30 under 30, and maybe that experience comes later in that professional life of like, this is what I was doing then. And it was really great and on really in the moment and on target. And then later in life, something else. Well, we don't know that about each other. We only see that glamorized piece of it. And that's what I think a lot of young people are struggling with is there's these pictures of how great everything is going for everybody but me, that feeling of everybody but me. And that's a lot of pressure. It's a tremendous amount of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. I'm curious. I know this is the work that you do and we'll take a second to dive into that as well in just a minute. But in terms of your career, you've shared so many great lessons from trying out different things to figuring out what your personal values are and what's fulfilling for you, following the trail of clues and making choices that support what works best for you, figuring out where you need help and how to ask for it, which is so critical. I could, we could talk about that all day, but I won't like the sort of title for this research that I'm doing at this point is I tell myself, so you've shared so many great things. I'm just want to ask, is there anything else? If you think back specifically that Mm -hmm. given the opportunity, you'd tell your early career self, given what you know now, I, I think it would have been less stressful for me 
if I had listened to some of the feedback I was getting about what I was good at with an open heart, maybe, because I think what I really, what I was hearing was good feedback and good clues, good information, but I was not open to, to hearing it. I was feeling like, well, they're, like I said earlier, they're biased or they don't really know me that well, or they don't know that what I also, that I'm also not good at this other thing. So they might not say that if they, so that self-doubt, right. That imposter feeling of, you know, but they don't really know the whole picture. And so they wouldn't be saying that. So I think if I had been kinder to myself and more respectful of what I was hearing and the people who were sharing, right, to be able to say, I don't think this person would be giving me that feedback. And this is what I say sometimes to to my daughter and to other people is, you know, give them some credit, right? They don't have to say anything. So if they're saying something to you, um, you can take it at face value right? You don't have to bet the bank on it, but you can take it for what it's worth. So I probably, if I could tell myself one thing, would be be respectful of the person who's telling you something and be accepting that feedback is genuine and real. And you can, you can be comfortable with that. Yeah, that's great. I think that's often the hardest to do when you're getting positive feedback. It, it's so much easier to hear. It hurts more, but it's easier to hear the negative and believe that it's true about ourselves. And so taking in both the opportunities for growth, but also hearing people when they tell you that they see a strength in you or they appreciate something that you brought to the team is, is worth the effort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's great. Yeah. So let me ask you, what is it that Samaritans does? So Samaritans is most well known for the helpline calls that we answer. So we take calls and texts now through 988 for people who are struggling and who need someone to talk to in a non-judgmental and compassionate way. And so we're available 24-7. We've also started a peer-to-peer text line for young people called Hey Sam. And so we train young people to interact with other young people. And many, uh, as I said, who call or reach out to us are struggling or lonely or upset by something they're experiencing. They just need somebody to connect with. It's sometimes believed that you have to be suicidal to reach out to Samaritans, and that's not true. So we want to make sure people know that they are welcome to call us at any time that they uh, just need somebody to talk to or to talk to through text. And then the other two things that we're less well known for, but do quite a bit of one is our outreach and education programs where we can go into schools or community organizations to educate around some of the myths and misunderstandings around suicide to learn more about how to help a friend who's struggling, how to ask the right questions and so on. And then the other program is our support for suicide loss survivors. It's a very unique grief journey. And so connecting with other suicide loss survivors is a really important part of that grief journey for people. And so we have programs to support those loss survivors. And that would be friends or family or anybody that one's open. Yeah. Anybody, coworker, a relative near and extended, but really because it impacts a lot of people. Every suicide impacts a a big group of people who are impacted by that loss. And this is a way for us to help them process that experience and find hope again and feel hope again. And you guys are based in Boston. So I assume the, the courses that you, the schools that you teach in are offered in Boston, are the call lines open beyond Massachusetts? Who can call you? 
Yeah, anybody can call. So through 988, which is now the national number, people can call 988 from anywhere in the country. We handle some of the calls that come in Massachusetts. And Hey Sam is based in, uh, as you say, based in Massachusetts, but um, we are experiencing uh, outreach from young people all over the country. Um, the pandemic silver lining, one of the silver linings is that we have people volunteering and working with us from all over the country and even beyond who used to be able to come to the phone room, but now are elsewhere in the country and are able to help us from wherever they are elsewhere. So that's kind of a, as I said, a silver lining to all of this. And then a lot of our virtual support groups and our workshops are being done virtually as well. So people can get support for suicide loss through the virtual meetings. And we can deliver some of the workshops that we do also virtually. We're happy to be getting back in person for all of it, but people can find out about those things on the website, which is probably the easiest way to learn more is at samaritanshope.org. And again, the text line or the call line for support is 988, is that right? 988 for um, anybody 24-7 and Hey Sam for the up to 24-year-old young people. And that is open from 9 a.m. to midnight. You just text in the letters, hey, you text the letters in Hey Sam. You text Hey Sam. I don't know off the top of my head what those numbers are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should, but I sing. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview today. It's a great work yeah, that you do. thank you. Very happy for the chance. Thank you. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something to support you wherever you are on your own journey. Don't forget to subscribe where you listen to your podcasts and head over to itellmyself.com to sign up for updates. Until next time, take care.